Welcome to StoryCorps, Share Your Science. I'm Sandy Duick, a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute at NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, California. Today, I'm catching up with Dr. Dave Blake, who is also at Ames. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. You started out in military school, went to Stanford University, after which you were commissioned to the Navy. You managed divers and deck sailors on the USS Conserver where you also were a hard hat, deep sea diver, and then, then you landed at Ames Research Center. In more than 25 years of research at Ames, you studied astrophysical ices, interplanetary dust, Mars meteorites, lunar soil, stratospheric soot, and participated in the development of several space flight instrument prototypes. Who are you? How did you get from a commissioned officer and hard hat deep sea diver to a spacecraft instrument designer? So let's start with inventor of extraordinary spaceflight instruments. Talk to me about the Kemen mineralogy instrument. It went to Mars in 2011. How did you come up with the idea for it and what does it do? Well, so Kemen is, a, is something called an X-ray diffractometer and it uses X-rays to to analyze uh, rocks, and it can identify the minerals present in the rocks. And if you know the minerals that are present, then you can identify the environments under which they were formed. So a good example would be something like a diamond. Diamonds are only formed at very high pressure and high temperature. They're kind of, they're unstable at Earth's surface temperatures and pressures, but they persist. But if you find a diamond, uh, you know that it, it originated uh, deep under the earth in the mantle. So the, identifying the mineralogy of something is a way to identify the environment of formation of, of those minerals. And how did you come up with the idea for it? Well, that was actually pretty dead easy. Uh, I, my advisor at Michigan was an x-ray crystallographer and his advisor uh, was an MIT crystallographer named Martin Berger. And back in the old days, uh, you had to build your own x-ray cameras. So that's what Martin Berger did. So uh, I certainly learned a lot of that from my advisor at Michigan. And when I came to Ames, I was really surprised that no one had thought about doing XRD on another planet. And so it's all history from there. It is. I mean, the, the, the truth of it is, uh, X-ray diffractometers are monster machines. They're the size of a double-wide refrigerator, and they take thousands of watts, and you need a, a, a specially designed water cooler just to keep them from overheating. So getting that into a small package was hard. Sounds like a miracle, almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the beginning, I thought it would, would, would have to take a miracle. In 2019, you were awarded the prestigious H. Julian Allen Award for a paper you wrote entitled Characterization and Calibration of the Kemen Mineralogical Instrument on Mars Science Laboratory, published in Science, Space Science Reviews. What has changed in what we know about Mars today as a result of your paper? Okay, well, first, let me just kind of quickly describe why we wanted to go to Mars in the first place or why NASA wants to go to Mars. I'm in the exobiology branch, and we're interested in the origin of life and, and what early life might have been. And on the Earth, we know early life started 
3.5, 3.9 billion years ago. The Earth is uh, 4.5 billion years old. Uh, but the Earth has plate tectonics. So the result of that is all of those early rocks were mostly subsumed and melted or, or heated to the point that you can't tell even what they are. So there are very few places on Earth to go to look for these old rocks. They just don't exist anymore. Uh, on Mars, which apparently never had plate tectonics, if you're rolling along the surface of Mars, you're rolling on material that was deposited between three and four billion years ago, and it's pretty much in the same state that it was. So it's a really unique opportunity to have a window into, you know, what the early Earth was like. And, you know, we also know that Mars was warm and wet at the same time that the Earth was. So there's a good possibility, or possibility anyway, that uh, that life could have originated on Mars as well. So that's the reason to go to Mars. Now, why would uh, this instrument produce anything interesting? Well, so the MSL rover, which is on, in Gale Crater on Mars, uh, is analyzing the rocks there, and, and uh, those rocks are 3.7 to 4 billion years old. So we discovered that uh, Gale actually used to have a lake in it. So how did we know that? Well, we knew from the mineral, of course, we knew the sedimentologists could suspect that's the case. You could see these finely laminated sediments and things like that. But uh, more than that, the, the minerals present told you there was a lake. And in fact, the very first drilled sample that we made uh, on, on Mars in Gale Crater, uh, we found uh, clays, we found minerals present that suggested that uh, a reaction had taken place that, that could have supported life, it's called serpentinization. So effectively, these rocks showed that something called the serpentinization reaction had taken place, which would have liberated hydrogen, and hydrogen is used as food by early very, very early organisms on life. So, so we, we found this to be a habitable environment, uh, the first one ever discovered on another planet. A geologist's dream. Yeah. <laughs> And, and we just continued, uh, uh, my colleague Tom Bristow wrote a paper uh, where we knew these sediments were, were in, in, uh, in contact with, with this shallow uh, freshwater lake. And so therefore they were in contact with the Mars atmosphere. And he did uh, geochemical calculations that showed that the, the amount of CO2 in the Mars atmosphere was, was very much less than a bar, a fraction of a bar, which is uh, just a, uh, not very much. And one of the theories about why Mars was warm and wet way back when, even though it was further from the sun and a smaller planet, was something called greenhouse warming that caused was caused by CO2. So in that same analysis, we showed that CO2 greenhouse warming couldn't have been the way that Mars was kept to be warm and wet. You are currently working on X-ray microscopic imager for Mars and an X-ray diffractometer for the Moon. What's the story here? What will these instruments do and what do you hope they will tell us? Oh, and one more thing. Are you you're building these instruments as well? Yes. I know a fair bit about X-rays. These are all X-ray instruments and they all contain more or less the same components. So I can tell you that the very same components that we use to build the, the Kemen instrument can be used in Lego fashion to build all these other instruments. So the MAP-X, which is the X-ray imager, is able to take an image of 
of a surface in in the elements that it contains. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what it does is, is you get uh, an image like a postage stamp sized image mm -hmm. and you can see where all the elements are in that image. And, and uh, the, the thing about that is that life and things like that occupy small niches. And so we really would like to see the composition of materials at the same scale of, of, of order, same magnitude as the organisms that might be there. So, so we can take uh, actually images of elements at about 100 micron spatial resolution, which is about the diameter of a human hair, and come up with like a, a full color image of what the elements are that are there. And that, that's MAPX. And, uh, and there, there's something, it should have been obvious, but I, I kind of came to the conclusion or came to this realization after 15 years that if you really want to talk about a solid material, there's only really three major salient things about it. There's the structure, that is the crystal structure. There's the composition, which is what elements are present there. And there's the morphology, which is the shape of it. And so between, uh, you know, an XRD and a Kemen and a, and a MAPX uh, X-ray imaging instrument, you get all three of these. I just finished reading the paper, The Emergence of Life, published in 2019 by E. Camp Ruby et al., where it mentioned that clays and mineral surfaces were or may be significant to the emergence of life. Based on your research, do you believe that clays and minerals were significant to the emergence of life on Earth? And if so, why? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very possible. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hypothesis like many, and so we don't know if it's true or not. Um, I remember when, when I was a graduate student, well, my thesis was on biomineralization, which is how organisms create hard parts like shells. Mm -hmm. And so I was very interested in anything associated with biology and minerals. And there was a famous book by a, by a scientist named uh, Elgon T. Deggins, who rings a bell with a lot of the old timers, I think. He wrote a book called Mechanisms of Silica, Phosphate, and carbonate deposition in the living cell. And so I read that back then. Even back then, this was like the, the late 60s, um, people thought that maybe minerals had, had a role in this. And the reason is mineral surfaces are charged in one way or the other. The edges of clays are charged and there's a periodic, the inner layers in clays are periodically spaced. Um, you take a surface like quartz and depending upon uh, which which uh, facet of a crystal you measure, it has some positive or negative charge on it, and as do uh, active biomolecules. So it, it's a way to attract biological molecules pre-organically and get them together. Okay. And, and, and the other thing I would say about that is that everything happens at interfaces. Water, air, solid water, that's where the action is. That's where changes happen. And so all of that kind of points towards rocks and minerals having, having a role in this. And because we're searching for life on other planets, how will we know when we found it? Will the answer lie in clay and minerals? Uh, well, we won't. <laughs> That's the short answer. Um, I've always kind of constrained myself to work with habitable environments and not necessarily origin of life. And, and you know, even on the Earth, even in places where 
using all of our techniques, it's very obvious this is this is life. This is organic uh, life. Uh, like for example, some of these very ancient stromatolites. Well, we 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 know by just all kinds of techniques that say, for example, the Gunflint or some of these other famous uh, localities, these stromatolites were formed by organisms. But that was only after exhaustive study. If if we see something that mimics those shapes and forms, we could we could think that maybe that's true. Mm -hmm. If we use something like MapX to see that elements are present in concentrations at different places, that might suggest that such a thing is true. But I think it's going to be nearly impossible to really make a, a complete uh, conclusion about this. And, and in fact, uh, I spent a good deal of time working on the uh, something called the ALH84001 meteorite. This is a meteorite that was proposed by uh, some folks from NASA to actually contain, it came from Mars, proposed by folks from NASA to actually contain evidence of, of uh, microbial life. A good deal of time trying to prove that that was false. And uh, we actually found good analogs to that meteorite in Spitsbergen, Norway, and we showed that all of those features could have been explained by um, non-organic or abiotic uh, mechanisms. Okay. And so I, I think it, it's just tough. It's really tough. How did you know that meteorite came from Mars? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, it, it wasn't really, they, they had these uh, uh, meteorites that, that uh, were in a class of their own. They're called SNCs. And after the three meteorites that, that were in the class at the time, uh, they appeared different than meteorites that came from, uh, you know, the original solar uh, solar system. And one thing is that you can measure the age of these things with with uh, dating. And a lot of these are younger than the origin of the solar system. And all meteorites that come from the asteroid belt or wherever, not from a planet, are all the same age. They're exactly 4.54 or something or other uh, mil billion years old within plus or minus 10 million years. So, so the age was different for one. The, the crystallinity, the crystals were much larger, suggesting that the crystallization happened in a larger body. And then finally, the, the real linchpin for it was uh, some NASA scientists measured uh, essentially gas trapped in, in glasses that were formed when the original impact happened that separated the meteorite from the parent body. These gases had the identical isotopic composition as the Mars uh, atmosphere measured by Viking. That was it. That was a smoking gun. And now we have something like 250 examples of, of materials that came from Mars, meteorites that came from Mars. Oh, I want to be a meteorite hunter. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of them come from Antarctica, so you have to be well oh. really bundled up. <laughs> did you go there yourself? No, I never did. When I was applying for graduate school, there was a, a guy from uh, UC Davis who wanted to have me as a graduate student in biology because I, I was going to go back in either biology or geology. And he worked on flora, flora and fauna of Antarctica. And he was attracted to me because I had been a diver in the Navy. And he sent me uh, articles. Uh, that he had written from his work down there. Uh, one of the three of them was a full article on 
attack on divers by leopard seals. And so I saw that and I go, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> Smart decision. <laughs> okay, so we're working back in time here from your very interesting work history. Now I'm gonna ask you some questions about your early life. Uh, I want you to describe your science journey, starting out when you were a kid. Well, it, it actually started when I was six years old. And uh, unfortunately, I, I lost my mother when I was six. And that was, I'm sure that was a quite an emotional thing and uh, caused me to think a lot. And I had a first grade teacher named Mrs. Besser that kind of took me under her wing. And she signed me up for the Audubon Society and I started collecting pictures of birds and pine cones from trees and stuff like that. And just kind of classifying them and putting them in drawers and things like that. And I didn't really know that that was even science at the time. It was just something that I knew that I enjoyed doing. So, you know, there's a book uh, by Richard Rhodes called uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. And he, he looked in great detail into the life of some of these physicists that were involved with that. Many of those physicists had lost a parent. And it just strikes me that when something like that happens, that kind of emotional thing happens, you, you think about what the world's all about. You know, you you really wonder what is all this? And so I think that kind of caused me to kind of look out and, and try to understand the things around me. Did you have favorite subjects in middle school and high school? Well, I always enjoyed science. I, I was uh, I was I was horrible. At, I, I liked recess. I, I was uh, I was horrible at art. I couldn't really sing very well. Uh, math, I, you know, I was never really very good at math, surprisingly. There was a, so, so the U.S. was clearly way behind in science when Sputnik was launched. So I'm a Sputnik generation kid. And they had uh, satellite, right? Yeah, the satellite. And so they started the, the, the government, the U.S. started a program to make sure that we had people educated in science. And, and they made a science curriculum, a physics curriculum that was, uh, produced by Nobel Prize winners to really kind of educate us. And they all involved hands-on science. And and that I enjoyed. I like building things. That's obvious, yes. Did you know when you were a high school student that you, that you wanted to be a scientist and work at NASA? Uh, I didn't really think about NASA so much at the time. I knew I wanted to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, for that reason, I concentrated on history classes and, and uh, English classes because I figured I wouldn't be doing those in college. I did do some, some amateur scientist stuff, some science fair stuff. Uh, there was a, a guy named C.L. Strong who, who was the, uh, he wrote the, the amateur scientist column in Scientific American. And so I followed all that stuff. Uh, there was a book made of all of his experiments and i did a lot of those experiments uh hills vortex tubes um i tried to build a linear accelerator but failed you set yourself up for success very early i tried <laughs> fill in the blank i was inspired by um it depends at what age um certainly guys like carl sagan I mean, when I was when I was an adult, when I was uh, more of a grown up, well, I read a, a lot of um, biographies of scientists. Uh, they're they're really fun to read. Uh, Feynman, I, I would never suggest that I'm anything like 
these geniuses, but reading about Feynman, reading about Carl Sagan, Marie Curie was one of my heroes. You know, just reading about it makes you feel good about what people have done and, and, and the subject matter. So I have a two-part question for you. What excites you about coming to work every day? How has the pandemic affected your work? Um, are, are you still as excited to do your work? Uh, you know, I'm a hands-on guy and I'm not a theoretician by any means. So not having my hands on instruments and actually collecting real empirical data uh, is kind of a downer. And uh, the good news is we, I couldn't go to my lab, but we could visit our labs for two hour intervals. So I was able to take in a, a big truck and drag a lot of my equipment out of my lab and install it in a, in a, in a private laboratory in, uh, in Mountain View. And so I still, I still am able to run some of my machines, the ones that we can move uh, and gather data. So probably every scientist you talk to has five papers he hasn't written yet. So there's, there's certainly plenty of things to do uh, even without doing hands-on science. If you weren't a scientist today, what else might you be? I'd do something in nature. I'd be a forest ranger. You know, something, I mean, nature is really the thing that inspired me in the first place. And, you know, if, if you want to see something beautiful, look at a tree. Look at the things that live in the dirt. I mean, look at, look at these little plants that grow a single flower, and, and that single flower is... is pollinated by only one kind of insect and and you know all these things that that are so unique in your career so far what job has inspired you the most made you think differently about your life and the world around you some of the discoveries i've made have kind of inspired me and discoveries don't come that often you know the the the, the lion's share of the work that any scientist does aside from being on mars the lion's share is just plug and chug, collect data, tabulate it, trying to find something different. You know, it's it's really, it's it's work. You have to enjoy the work to do it. But uh, occasionally you have an aha moment when you see something that you realize, okay, okay, I know this. And uh, one thing that uh, I remember a couple of things, when I was working in astrophysical ice, I was working on mixed, mixed uh, frozen down gases to, to kind of study how ice is formed in the coldness of space. And I remember I was looking in the electron microscope, looking at the, the, the diffraction pattern, the crystal structure of an ice as I warmed it up, and I was looking for things that changed. And all of a sudden it went from being amorphous to being crystalline. And the crystallinity was was much different than water ice or anything like that and and so it, it was just one of those times where you you see okay i know this i figured this and like i say it doesn't happen very often uh but it's wonderful when it does i can't even imagine by, by the way this happens almost every time we collect a sample on mars so <laughs> uh, lots of aha moments lots of excitement yeah. This, this is a podcast and there are no visuals for you to share with the audience. So I'm going to make some assumptions about you and I want you to agree or disagree. I wear a white lab coat. Uh, no. I sit behind a computer all day. Sort of. <laughs> it's not the thing that I 
that I would claim the thing that, that I that I, that's the greatest uh, attribute. It, it, I would rather be somewhere else, but uh, somebody's got to do the, the the paperwork. Right. Uh, I have no hobbies or outside interests. Science research is my life. Um, that's kind of true right now. When I started out, I well, I mean, when I when my kids were younger, I I coached uh, ice hockey and soccer and baseball, and that kind of took up a lot of my time. Um, I did photography as a hobby. In fact, I had my own dark room at, at Ames because uh, we used this to develop. Uh, pictures from the electron microscope. So I, I use the dark room, don't tell anybody, uh, to, to um, you know, make some of my own photographs. I have a hobby of repairing old English cars, and uh, which is, may explain why I'm able to not be frustrated doing science, because those are pretty frustrating. But, you know, the truth of it is after years and years and years of the science, a lot of those things drop behind the way, so I, I don't do a lot of that stuff anymore, and I'm kind of worried about what's going to happen when I retire. Dave, you are never going to retire. <laughs> Actually, I, that's true. I'm still writing proposals. Um, my wife has kind of given up on me, and uh, we'll see. In my family, I'm best known for... Oh. I guess just being the scientist or something. Um, it's curious that both my wife and I were scientists. She's, she was a, a neurobiologist, pharmacologist, and I was a mineralogist. And I'm thinking that our kids watched how hard we worked. We tried not to show them that. Uh, and as a result, now that one of my kids went into anything even closely resembling science. <laughs> In my work, I'm best known for. Uh, I, I would say it's building instruments, but I, I kind of flatter myself to think that I'm a scientist. I mean, when you build an instrument, it should have a beauty to it. it the form and the function should follow, and that's I think that's very characteristic of the of the the instruments that Philippe Sarazen and I build. Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not engineering results of we need this answer. They are a form and function that, that, that follows from the measurement that's required. And I think that's really important. I believe we're alone in the universe. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, hmm. Well, I don't want to go on record on that, but uh, I don't know. You know, I also grew up as a Star Trek kid, and I, I, my, one of my wishes and no it's never going to happen is to go warp nine to some of the galaxy and just see what's out there you know i think we all wonder that and so we'll probably never really know the answer to this life is certainly rare as somebody wrote a book about um but there's a god there's there's a there's a billion plus suns in every galaxy there are billions of galaxies and as the the most recent experiment uh kepler showed uh, almost every planet that we've looked at has, or I'm sorry, every every star that Kepler looked at has planets revolving around it. So there are, uh, I don't want to quote Carl Sagan, but there are billions and billions and billions and billions of planets, and many are inhabitable zones. So intellectually, that means there has to be life somewhere else. There has to be. Now, do I think we're going to find it? 
Um, we don't have the capacity to go outside the solar system. We, we have uh, barely the capacity to reach the surface of another planet or place like Europa. And so we just can't really search very well. And the, the only places that could have life in our solar system are just like a handful of things. Venus, surface of Venus, which was Earth's twin, right? Uh, you could melt lead on the surface of Venus. That is not a habitable environment. And anything out beyond uh, Mars is a gas giant. There isn't even a solid surface. So uh, we don't have many places to look in our solar system. There are some. Uh, so I don't think we'll know. My gut feeling is yes. Thank you, Dave. You are such a fascinating person, and I am so glad that I know you. Well, thank you very much.